You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. We've been looking at the parables of the kingdom this spring. One of the main things Jesus talked about is the kingdom of God. And one of the main ways he talked about it was through parables. They're little stories that pack a big punch. Today we're looking at the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's in Matthew 20. So go ahead and open up your Bibles there. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. This is actually part of a larger section that runs throughout Matthew 19 and 20. And this whole section is dealing with the way that we compare ourselves to one another's, the way that we're always trying to calculate where we stand in this world. And it's challenging, that way of thinking. And one of the things you see in this is right before and right after the parable, Matthew inserts this little proverb. So if you'll back up into 19, verse 30, you'll see it says, Many who are last will be first, and the first last. And then right after the parable, chapter 20, verse 16, says, so the last will be first and the first last. What does that mean? Klein Snodgrass, who's a commentator on the parable, says this. He says it means human perceptions on ranking are without significance and will be stood on their head in the kingdom. So we know that the parable is going to have something to do with the reversal of values. When I was doing campus ministry at the University of Texas, Donald Miller was speaking on campus one night, and so after he was done, I asked him if he would go with me over to the SAE house, one of the fraternities on campus, and talk to the guys. He agreed. Um, We got there about midnight, and I called a bunch of the guys, and the room was totally packed. And one of my favorite things he said that night is he said to those guys, you know, the things that you do now that make other people think you're cool When you're 30, those exact same things will make people think you're a loser. It was an awesome line. Just flip the whole room upside down. Their whole economy of coolness was turned on its head. Parables do that kind of thing. They flip things upside down, and this one does it in a very cool way. Most of us grew up in a system of comparison and competition. It happened before you even were aware of it. When you were born, you were measured and weighed and you were ranked in a percentile against all the other babies in the world. And that ranking system carried out through your early years. And then you went to school and every year you took tests that ranked you in a percentile against all the other kids in the nation who took that test. Later on, you got a class rank. If you were in sports, sports are competitive by nature, so that's fine. But the further you go in sports, the more scrutiny and pressure there is on player rankings and team rankings. I literally read this week a list of the top 14-year-old quarterbacks in the country. That's ridiculous. Some of you played instruments. When you play an instrument in the band, you literally sit in the order of your achievement level. I was second chair clarinet in the seventh grade. You know what's interesting? I don't remember anyone in that class except Armando. You know why I remember Armando? Because Armando was first chair, clarinet. Our whole world is just comparison and competition, and it doesn't change when we're adults. We are still ranked and classified. 
from tax brackets to org charts to where you sit on the plane, it's happening all the time. In all of this, we, we learn what's applauded and what's rewarded. We calculate where we stand. We all grew up dealing in the currency of comparison, and it's exhausting. The good news is that the kingdom of God is not like that. The currency of the kingdom is grace. No one can save himself. Everyone needs Jesus. And every part of his body has a role according to the grace that is given each person. If you try to calculate the currency of grace, you're going to be surprised. Because many who are first will be last and the last first. That's what this parable is going to get at. Now, when I read the parables of the kingdom, I always ask two questions. What does this parable teach me about the kingdom of God? And what does it teach me about life in the kingdom? And so let's ask those two questions. First, what does the parable of the workers in the vineyard teach us about the kingdom of God? Well, look at verse 1. The kingdom is like a landowner or a master of a house, who went out early to hire workers for his vineyard. And so you've got all the major elements of the story right there in verse 1. Landowner, land, workers, and, and wages are implied in it. But the emphasis is on the landowner. Apart from him, there's no story to tell. It's his land, it's his initiative to hire the workers, it's his money, and so on. And likewise, The most important thing and the obvious thing about the kingdom of God is God. There's no story to tell apart from God. The goodness of the kingdom is God himself. It's his presence. It's his power. It's his wisdom. It's his love and grace toward us in Christ. The story of redemption, if you think about it, is really a story about a landowner who sends workers into his vineyard. In the beginning, God created the Garden of Eden, and he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he told them to work it and to keep it. And the plan was to expand the garden all over the earth. And so he told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. When sin came into the world, uh, they were exiled from the presence of God in the garden. But the mission of God went on through imperfect people like Noah and Abraham and Moses, Deborah, David, Nehemiah, and many others. All of those stories lead to the climax, which is that God so loved the world, he sent his only son. In his life, Jesus did the Father's will without sin. On the cross, he defeated sin and death. And in his resurrection, he began the work of new creation. And how will this new creation fill the earth? Through his people. Jesus found some disciples. He called them to himself. And he sent them into the Father's vineyard to do his work, to make disciples of all nations. And we are part of that work. We are laborers in the kingdom. And the joy of our work is the presence and the blessing of God.
apart from God, we were just trying to get ahead in the world, just trying to get some attention, just trying to figure out where we stand. But God found us, and he said, hey, stop, stop chasing greener grass. Why don't you come work for me? And we said, well, what does it pay? And he said, it's a family business. So just like a father knows what his children need and gladly gives it to them, I will always know what you need, and I will gladly give it to you. We said, well, I don't think I'm worthy for such a task. And he said, the lamb is worthy. He did the hard work. It's finished. He died so that you can have life with me. And we say, well, I don't know if I'm going to be any good at this kind of work. And he says, don't worry about it. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. You will have gifts. My power will be perfected in your weakness. How great is that? And there's nothing left to say except that this king is a good king. He is the goodness of the kingdom. And the joy of working in his vineyard is his presence and his blessing. See, this parable sets before us a good landowner. He's unconventional, as we will see, but he's compassionate and he's generous. However, the workers don't see it that way. At first, they're fine. They're, they're happy to be hired by this guy and they're happy to work for him. But by the end of the story, they're not so happy anymore. They're grumbling at him, complaining. And so what happens? Why are they unhappy? How do they not see the goodness of this landowner? Well, that teaches us something about life in the kingdom. Look at verse 1 again. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And in verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And so these are day laborers. Um, They don't have unemployment. They don't have anything to fall back on. They don't have benefits or union or anything like that. And so it's really important that they get paid a fair wage. And so you see this discussion in verse 2, and they agree on a denarius a day. It's basically minimum wage. It's what you would expect for day labor. That's what they agree on, and that's what they get. So why do they complain? Let's look how the story unfolds. Verse 3. And going out about the third hour, he, the the landowner, saw others, other workers, standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one's hired us. And he said, okay, you go into the vineyard too. And so there's all these different groups of workers, and each of them have their own agreement or their own arrangement with the landowner. And this is a really odd feature in the story. I don't think this kind of thing happened. Nobody hired people for an hour to go work on their land. It's, it's included in the story to tell us something about the landowner, to highlight his compassion and his generosity. Now, after all have been hired, And the day is over. It's time to get paid. Look at verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. That's not normal either. 
normally you would first pay the people who've been working the longest and then work your way to those who've been there the least amount of time. But he reverses it. And it's an element in the story that alerts us to the fact that what's about to happen is surprising. It's unusual. And here's the first punchline in the story, verse 9. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Wow. These guys worked an hour, and they got paid a full day's wage. We didn't know what they were going to get paid because it doesn't tell us. It just says that he would do what was right. And so on one hand, it, it's more than we expected because they didn't work very long. But on the other hand, you know, a denarius is basically what you need to live. If you're going to hire anyone at all, it's right to at least give them what they need to live. And so in that sense, he did what was right. Now, the guys who were hired at 6 a.m., who'd been working all day, they saw what happened. And as you can imagine, they were pretty encouraged by it. Verse 10 tells us, when they saw that the guys that only worked an hour got a full day's wage, they thought they would get more. So they're thinking, if these guys hardly broke a sweat, got a full day's wage, then we're going to make a lot more than that. Like, we could make 12 denarii. That would be a huge day for them. And I would imagine just standing there in line, they already start spending that money that they assume they're going to get in their head. You ever do that kind of thing? You ever develop expectations about what you should get based on what you see happening with other people and even kind of start imagining what that will be like when you get it? Like, you know, kids in the science fair. Some kid did the same project he did last year and the year before that, and he gets like a B-plus on it. And other kids are like, man, I, I came up with a whole new thing. I worked really hard. I'm, I should definitely get an A. And if they don't get it, nothing else will do. They're totally disappointed. Someone in your office gets a raise, and you think, well, good for them. But, I mean, I'm like twice as productive as, as they are. So I should be getting a raise pretty soon, and it should be a good one. Somebody gets attention or applause for something they did, and you're like, I, I just did that. I just said that exact same thing, and I got no attention, no applause. Do you see how our comparison with others begins to develop in us expectations about what we deserve? That's what's happening with these guys. They saw what happened to the others, and they thought they would receive more. And if you're listening to the story, you think the same thing. But here's the second punchline. Verse 10, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. That's not fair, right? I mean, <laughs> that's not fair that these guys didn't even break a sweat and, and we are sunburned and blistered and they made the same thing. It's not fair that that kid got a good grade. It's not fair that she got a raise. It's not fair that they got attention. It's not fair. We all have deep within us this sense of fairness. It starts when we're kids. Kids say it all the time. That's not fair. But even as adults, we have it. And when that is violated, it feels like a great injustice has been done, and we must speak out. And they do. Verse 11. On receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, 
and you've made them equal to us who have become the bur- who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat and there it is you made them equal to us that's not fair notice their complaint isn't really about the owner the work and the wages is all as was agreed upon the complaint is about them you made them equal to us they can't see the goodness of the master because they're not really looking at the master they're looking at them theodore roosevelt said comparison is the thief of joy and i think that's right if these early day workers had been paid first like normal Uh, they wouldn't be angry at all. They would have just gone home satisfied with a good day's work, thankful for their good master, eager to work again the next day. But because they saw what they were paid, they were angry. Now they're going home thinking about how they've been cheated and what they deserve. They're going home feeling defeated. And you know that's going to spill over into all of their home life and relationships Comparison is going to steal so many good things from them. Sometimes we feel angry at God, but the truth is we're not really looking at God. We're looking at them. That's where comparison leads us, looking at them and grumbling at God. The master's response is insightful. It teaches us some things about life in the kingdom. Verse 13. But the master replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. In other words, be satisfied with your work. Go home and enjoy your life, just as you would have if you hadn't been looking at them. And here's an application. Life in the kingdom is enjoying what God has given you. It doesn't mean you can't ask for more or work for more. It just means that along the way, you enjoy what God has given you. You stop constantly looking for greener grass. He is the greener grass. He is the goodness of the kingdom. He goes on. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. In other words, this isn't about you. This is between me and them. And that line made me think of the end of John 21. After uh, Jesus restores Peter, basically tells him, hey, I still got work for you to do. I'm still going to send you out into the vineyard. And he tells Peter, it's going to cost you your life. You're going to get killed for this work. So Peter, understanding the terms agrees. He says, I got, I'm going to follow you. And then John writes, Peter's looking at Jesus, square in the eye, he's going to follow him. And then Peter turns and sees John, one of his little friendly rivals. And looking at John, Peter says to Jesus, what about him? Same deal for him? Is he going to get killed too? And Jesus says, this is what he says, so great. Jesus said, it's, if it's my will that he remains until I come, like if he stays alive until I come back, what is that 
to you. You follow me. Life in the kingdom is life in the body. It's life in community. And everyone has unique assignments and unique gifts, and all are needed. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, The eye of the body cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Right? That we might never look at the other person and be like, well, what about them? But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Man, that is a really good litmus test for life in the kingdom. Do you weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? Finally, verse 15, he says, the owner says, Am I not allowed to do what I want with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? That is a great little phrase. It's, it's a heavy, heavy punchline. Um, the translation is a little bit tricky. What that question actually says is, is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I'm good? Uh, an evil eye is an idiom that basically means greed or stinginess. So like in Proverbs, you get these phrases. Proverbs 28 says, A man whose eye is evil hastens after wealth. He's greedy. Proverbs 23 says, Don't eat the bread of a man whose eye is evil, because he's stingy. He's like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. In contrast, Proverbs 22 says, Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. So the evil eye is envy and greed and stinginess. And the good eye is generosity and compassion. It's the good owner. The word good connects back to the story that comes just before this of the rich young ruler. When Jesus says, there's only one who is good. It's God. The, the landowner is good because he has compassion and he gives to the poor. Something that the rich young ruler wasn't willing to do. The workers think that they're making a case for fairness, but their eye is bad. They can't see the generosity of the owner because they're blinded by envy and greed. They thought they would receive more. Klein Snodgrass says this, The life of God's kingdom, with its focus on communal love, cannot be experienced as long as we are comparing ourselves with others and calculating what is due us or being envious of what others receive. So how can it be experienced? How do we avoid all the trappings of looking at them? Well, the answer is to look at Jesus. 
looking at them produces envy and greed, but looking at Jesus produces contentment and love for others. So in the very next story, um, the disciples, they're heading up to Jerusalem where Jesus has told them, I'm going here to die. Yet the disciples on the way are kind of jockeying for position. Even James and John's mom gets involved. She comes to Jesus and tries to get him to promote her boys to the left and the right hand in the kingdom. Jesus is like, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're asking. And so he pulls them all together and he says, listen, guys, this is, this is how the world operates. Everybody's looking for position and power, but this is not how the kingdom works. Whoever would be great among you, he says, must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be your bondservant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a little phrase, even as, means we not only look to Jesus to see what he's done for us, we look to his life as an example to follow, a pattern for the way of the kingdom. And so we begin just by looking at what he's done for us. The king gave up his life. That is the goodness of the kingdom, grace upon grace. And we keep looking to him. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we keep looking to his presence and his provision and his power. When you keep your eyes on Jesus, it changes you. His compassion, his generosity, his grace, it transforms you. You become like him. Your eye becomes good, and you see the goodness of his kingdom. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.